I would like to speak this afternoon on the guidance of the Lord and with respect to some specific things. But before we do, I'd like to turn to Psalm 84. This verse came before me in the breaking of bread, not as it relates necessarily to the Lord's death, but yet it came before me as our Brother Ben was speaking at the end of the breaking of bread. Psalm 84, and verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord will give grace and glory, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Three expressions in this verse. The Lord God is a sun and shield. What's the sun for? The sun is to give us warmth, and it's to give us light. Some of you may have heard the story of the, uh, this old woman that was sitting on a park bench, and for whatever reason, she was engaged by uh, an infidel, a skeptic, one that doubted the scriptures, and... Uh, he began to, to challenge her about the uh, scriptures that she was reading there and their veracity and their credibility. And she, says, well, she said, well, how do you know that they're true? And she says, well, how do you know there's a sun in the sky? He says, well, it gives me light and I feel its warmth. And she said, just so. I feel the warmth and I see the light from the word of God. He is a sun and he's a shield. The Lord is here for our protection, and not only is he there, and do we have a host of angelic servants to protect and keep us, but there is also the uh, protection from pitfalls in the road and dangers. The Lord is that great shield to protect and keep us. And now this middle expression was the one that particularly was before me. The Lord will give grace and glory. And we know as far as the Lord Jesus is concerned, his display of grace and we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. And we know that God's answers to the sufferings of Christ are the glories that should follow, the glories after these, the glories after the sufferings, and he's yet to enter into those kingdom glories. But for us, the Lord God gives grace for the pathway and glory at the end of the pathway. Those are his rich provisions for us, grace for the pathway and glory to end with it. And this last expression, what a wonderful expression it is. No good thing will he, will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I challenged a brother one time in my own experience. He says, well, it says no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And he says, well, maybe you should be exercised about that last expression, them that walk uprightly. And sometimes what we think is good for us is not necessarily what the Lord knows is good for us. But here I believe, although it was written to the Jews, I believe this principle can be embraced by us. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. But again, the reason I read this scripture is for the Lord will give grace and glory. Grace for the pathway and glory to end with it. Now another verse in Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> and this scripture is what <clears throat> encourages me to speak on what I'm going to speak about this afternoon. 
Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. I don't think I'm going to have any breakthrough thoughts or insights this afternoon. But as Paul could write to the Philippians, he says, To write the same things to me is not grievous. Whatever you're saying to them, it wasn't the first time they'd heard it. To write the same things... It's not grievous to me. Many of us have enjoyed like we did today. Perhaps there was nothing in the meal we enjoyed today that we'd never uh, had never eaten before. We said, no, I've had that before and I've enjoyed that before and I'm looking forward to have it again. Isn't it nice when we can take up the word of God in the same way? It's not a grievous thing. It's a delight. But his burden for the Philippians was not that it would be not his concern that be grievous, but for you it is safe. Because the reality is we just don't understand things hearing them once. Remember early on I used to reading the early chapters of Proverbs where you have the father speaking to the children. And I was looking for moral progression and how he's advancing them from one point to the next. And it just seemed to me we're going over the same ground again. I don't see advance. I don't see progress. I don't see development here at all. And then it struck me that maybe... That's not the point of these early chapters. It's not to find a moral progress and a trend ever upward. But the reality is in the home, what is needed many times is repetition. And you go over the same things over and over again. Maybe in different words, maybe from different vantage points, but to establish some foundational truths and principles. And Paul said, it's not grievous to me. I don't mind going over this again. And for you it is safe. Peter had that same thought there in Second Peter where he could say, to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. It wasn't that he had fresh light for them as to their pathway. He says, no, I'm going to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Something you've heard, something that you've known, you may have forgotten it, but I want to bring this before you. And so what is, as I say, before me this afternoon is to the guidance of the Lord Uh, I I don't expect that these thoughts necessarily will be new, but I believe they're safe for us to be reminded of. There's three main topics, and I don't know if we're going to get to it all. The the first is I'd like to take up uh, a portion that has to do with how the Lord guides when we have no direct scripture. The second is guidance with respect to marriage. And the third is guidance with respect to employment. The fourth would be guidance with respect to our path as individually, ecclesiastically, it is to our assembly fellowship. I don't know that we'll have time to get to the latter points. But please turn to Matthew chapter 2 because I believe in this chapter, Matthew chapter 1 to begin with, we have some instruction as to how the Lord guides when there is no direct scripture. For instance, there are verses in the Word of God that tell us that this is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us we are to abstain from fornication, for this is the will of God. We know if we abstain from fornication, we're doing the will of God. That's the negative thing. But we have scripture for it in black and white, and we can be assured that we're doing the will of God if we abstain from fornication. We also read that in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Can I give thanks in everything? Is that the right thing to do? 
Not only is it the right thing to do, we know we're in the will of God if we do it because he says it in black and white. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. If we give thanks in everything, that's our privilege. Not only is it a good idea, it's that which is stamped by the inspired scriptures that that is the will of God. And those verses are very comforting to us when we can fall back and say, there it is. The word of God declares this is the will of God. But we know that in our life, much of our life, most of our life, we don't have that clear-cut instruction from the scriptures as to what we might do. And so I'd like to look here in Matthew 1 and 2 to look at the four dreams of Joseph as to how the Lord would guide when there is no direct scripture. We think of Joseph, the son of Jacob in the Old Testament. He had two main dreams. But Joseph, the husband of Mary... The mother of our Lord had four dreams, but I'd like to draw a simple thought from each of them but I, that I believe bring a principle before us as to how the Lord would guide. Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth the son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the first a dream in verse 20 that Joseph had that the Lord guided him with respect to the matter of Mary being with child. Daniel, I believe it is, it speaks of the, the desire of women. It was the desire for every godly Jewess to bring forth, to bear the Messiah. And Isaiah prophesied that it would be a virgin that would bring forth a child. But here we have a situation for Joseph, and it was a situation that had never occurred before in the history of this world nor will ever occur again. And we find in Luke's gospel, it's the direction of God to Mary. In Matthew, where you have more of the responsible side and the side of authority, it is the communication of the Lord to Joseph. And so the Lord makes something known to Joseph, and perhaps Mary had said something, presumably had said something to him beforehand, but still, what was Joseph to do in this particular situation? The first thing I'd like to draw your attention to is what it says in verse 20, while he thought on these things. I'd like to go back to a proverb, chapter 19, and it, it's such an important scripture. It, you might want to turn to it just to, to read it. I'm sure many of us could say if we had followed the instruction in Proverbs 19 to there's many things that we wouldn't have done that we did and things that we did that we've subsequently regretted because we did not follow the wisdom of this scripture. Proverbs 19.2, 
says also that the soul be without knowledge, it is not good. And he that hasteth with his feet sinneth, or as Mr. Darby translated, he that hasteth with his feet maketh false steps. First Corinthians tells us that knowledge puffeth up, and that's the character of knowledge is when we know something, the, ten- the tendency of objective knowledge is to <clears throat> puff us up. It shouldn't be that way. We can bring it into the presence of the Lord and we're, uh, it's held in right relation to him and we're not puffed up. We would be humble in the presence of the Lord. But here it says, the soul be without knowledge, it is not good. God never encourages ignorance. Knowledge is a good thing. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And knowledge in Proverbs is information of a sound character. Are we absorbing and imbibing information of a sound character? There's a lot of things that are said in this day and age that simply aren't right. And we can absorb these things and we can have our thoughts formed by a world that has departed from God. We need knowledge and we need knowledge of the scriptures, the knowledge of God. But then it says, and he that hasteth with his feet sinneth or maketh false steps. Haste and quickness to make our decisions is not a good thing. You recall what um, was it uh, Darius, I guess, in Daniel 6, right? There where it said uh, he was going to be. Was he thrown to the lions or was it Daniel 3? I'm getting my two, the two chapters confused that Brother mentioned profitably this morning. But at one point, I'm not going to take the time to hunt it down and find it. But you'll find where the edict was given um, and Daniel could say, um, no, I guess it was later on, I'm sorry, in Belshazzar's day, where he, because the wise men couldn't answer what was written on the wall, he was going to kill everybody. I think that's the passage. And Daniel said to the king, why is the king in such haste about the matter? In other words, why, if we can't answer the matter now, this evening, is everybody going to be killed? Why the haste? Why the rush? What is of such constraint that you must slaughter your advisors and confidence if we don't deliver the message? Why is the king in such a haste about this matter? He that hasteth with his feet sinneth. And I find here with with Joseph, he thought on these things. And he waited from light from God. And he was given it. The Lord appeared to him. And so we come into situations in life. And you know, as to outward appearances, what others might have seen or thought, that was one thing. But Joseph was not guided by that. He was guided by waiting on the Lord. He did not judge according to appearance, as the Lord says, but he judged righteous judgment. And because he wasn't hasty, the Lord gave him counsel. He gave him light. He did not move apart from direction from God. And and thus he acted in intelligence. About two years later, we find that Herod was slaughtering the... uh, Young men, young boys, two years old and younger. But uh, I'm going to go down to chapter uh, 2 and verse 12. This is in reference now to the wise men. The wise men that had come to worship 
the Lord Jesus. And in verse 12, they're giving, and they're given direction by God. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And uh, well, we'll read on a little bit later. But now this uh, second um, uh, passage here. In verse 12, the wise men are warned of God in a dream that they should not return to their country but go a different way. And then in verse 13, the Lord gives light to Joseph. What has struck me from this passage is something I, I'm sure is a real test. It was to me, maybe if no one else here. This passage helped me as a young person. And that is you see the Lord that seems to be guiding most definitely in the life of your peers. It seems that they have given, they're given clear guidance and things are just falling into place for them, but they're not falling into place for you. And here they're given direction by the Lord to return to their country a different way. And the tendency is perhaps for us to say, well, there's the mind of the Lord for them. I'm just going to go that way. But we have to be careful that we do not simply follow the movements and guidance of others. Because what was the mind of the Lord for these wise men was not the mind of the Lord for Joseph. And we see brethren are going in a certain direction. We say, let's go. They've got the mind of the Lord. Maybe I don't, but it was right for them. It's right for me. Joseph didn't do that. And in verse 13, when they were departed, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. You know, if he had followed them, he, he would have missed the Lord's mind and he would have also not fulfilled prophecy. And actually, this thought jogged my mind as we were speaking at the dinner table that it wasn't um, by him following the direction of the Lord, prophecy was fulfilled out of Egypt, have I called my son. If he'd followed the wise men, that passage in Hosea would not have been fulfilled. I know it's a hypothetical that doesn't exist. But the reality is these things are worked out in the exercise of soul. And so Joseph here is given direction by the Lord, not by following the movements of others. Now verse, um, let's just go down to uh, verse 19. But when Herod was dead... Uh, behold, uh, an angel Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. That is where he was, is guided of God, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead, which sought the child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. Now this is the third dream of Joseph. And what has impressed itself upon me from this passage, Herod, has, Herod dies. So the threat to Joseph, to Mary and Jesus, is removed. And yet, Joseph does not say, well, the coast is clear now. I'm heading back. No, he waits again for the angel, verse 19, to appear in a dream and to give him guidance. And that's a danger that we have to also deal with, and that's the danger of presumption. Because thus and thus is so and so, therefore. 
But he didn't say, well, the coast is clear, I'm going back. He waited for guidance. That's the third dream. And briefly, the, the fourth dream here. Verse 22, so he moves back into Israel, but when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea and Rome of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. Now that's the fourth point. Just as he wasn't, <clears throat> did not act in presumption when Herod was dead, now he's fearful because there's, again, a fresh threat. But <clears throat> I find great encouragement from this. Joseph did not act in fear. He didn't say, I can't do this now because of the threat. No, once again, he waited on the leading of God <clears throat> in this dream. So those are just four points and <clears throat> decisions that we make in life that we are first, that we don't rush. That we don't judge according to appearance, but that we judge righteous judgment. That we don't make snap decisions, weigh it in the presence of God. The second thing, that we don't follow the movements of others, even if they are directly guided of God. That does not mean that that's the path for us. The third thing, that we don't be presumptuous just because things be falling into place. Therefore, this must be the mind of God. And conversely, because there is opposition and we're fearful, it does not mean it is not the Lord's mind, but rather wait for his direction in that. Perhaps I took too long on that, but I believe those are four important points. Now, I'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> Again, I would like to just lay out perhaps four main points with respect to um, a framework of decisions as it relates to marriage. You know, there's an excellent pamphlet. Our brother Robert Boulard had it reprinted. Gordon A.O. gave him a meeting when I was a, a young person on, on Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom hath hewn out her seven pillars. And, and in that excellent ministry that he gave, he pointed out seven pillars that are, are, are so important before a young man, young woman would uh, take up one another in marriage that all these things be present. Well, I'm not going to uh, reiterate all of those, although I strongly encourage it. There's just perhaps four points that I'd like to bring together that would give us, as I say, a, a framework for decisions, things that will give us a clear guidance. And the first is 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We'll stop there. It's what is spoken of in verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together. Or in the new translation, be not diversely yoked together. Now, there is an excellent article entitled uh, The Unequal Yoke. It was written by C.H. McIntosh. And he mentions in this article, there's four, he identifies four primary unequal yokes. The domestic unequal yoke, the commercial unequal yoke, the religious unequal yoke, and the philanthropic unequal yoke. Now this chapter here, I think, primarily has to do with the religious unequal yoke. That's the context here about the temple of God and so on. And so we find that in the worship and in the service of God, there is to be no linking up. We know what a yoke is. It links two together. It links two together for a common end. 
And certainly there could not be unity of thought and practice to have a believer and an unbeliever linked up together in the worship of God. It it, it is something that is strongly forbidden here. And there's these questions one after another, rhetorical questions we might speak of them. To ask them is to answer them. No, no, no. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. There is no concord with Christ and Belial and so on. It's to be diversely linked together. In Deuteronomy 22, the Israelite was told not to plow with an ox and an ass together. Why? Well, there's different applications. The most specific is the ox was a clean animal, the ass was an unclean animal. They could not go on together. Now, it's true, as a brother pointed out years ago, that an ass could be redeemed. A, um, a sheep's neck had to be broken and the ass could be redeemed, but still it was an unclean animal. And there's a thought where in service you can't walk together if you're not the same step. I understand that. That's an application. But the most basic explanation of that is they have different natures. One was a, As well as the fact one was a clean animal, one was an unclean animal. And so as to the worship of God in the religious sphere, there is no connection with light and darkness. So that's in the religious aspect. Commercial in, in terms of working. You know, it's one thing for to be the master-servant relationship. And many times I have worked for men that do not love Christ, or God-haters, if you will. And I've tried to be a good servant, and they've been good masters. That's one thing. That's a relationship, master-servant. It's another thing to be partners together. Now we're pulling together for a common cause. One loves Christ, one does not. Philanthropic, that's, that's a, an, another one, and, and I, I know it's really... And sometimes within the work context and things that we're called upon to do, that, uh, that can be very difficult. I just speak from one experience as it relates to philanthropic endeavors that you might be called upon to involve yourself in. But you know, the world and their philanthropy has man as the end. And there is such a thing. You have the thought of God's philanthropy in Titus 3, the love of God our Savior. That word is philanthropy, the love of God to man. God loves man, but we do not line up with the world for a common cause where Christ is not wanted. But then the last one, actually the first one that CHM mentioned, I just mentioned the others, by the way, that is domestic. That is, the first and most critical point is that young man, that young woman, or older, if even if one's older, is do they have love for the Lord? Are they obedient to the Lord? And are they walking with the Lord? I think all critical points. I talked to a brother one time. He was very down on the meeting, if you'll pardon the expression. And he said to me, with not a little feeling, and not without a little antagonism, he said, I've had two daughters. I've tried to raise my children for the Lord. I've been very careful with who my daughters dated and who they married. And they married two meeting boys. And look what's happened. Look what those meeting boys have done. You you couldn't stand for it. You couldn't justify it. I don't know if I had much to say at all. But you know what it says in Proverbs. I was almost in all iniquity in the midst of the congregation and the assembly. And just because someone is quote unquote a meeting boy. Does not mean there's love for the Lord. Obedience to the Lord. And a walk with the Lord. So I bring those things in together. The first is that one belonged to Christ, but I can think of nothing more tragic to close the day and realize here, this one, my husband or my wife, is one that knows not and loves not my Savior. 
Oh, it's a critical, that is the most critical of points. And history has repeated itself again over and over again. God in his mercy may intervene and we thank him for it. But in terms of our responsibility, that is a critical point for us to consider. Now turn over to Amos chapter 3 for another embrace principle. Amos chapter 3. And verse 3, Amos 3, 3, easy reference to remember. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Can two walk together except they be agreed? And I think the Lord's referring to himself and Israel in this context. How can I walk with you the way you're going on? And I'd like to mention three points of agreement that are so important that need to be addressed if we can look to the Lord's blessing in marriage. Oneness in uh, what we might speak of as church fellowship or assembly fellowship. Oneness is to service and oneness is to matters of a personal uh, character, matters within within the home. The, uh, this, of course, is a principle that would true. It includes salvation, but I want to take it beyond that a little bit more. So the first, I say matters of assembly fellowship. Now, the world says, and it's an interesting quote. To a young man to say, well, make sure with your in-laws to be that you agree with the father on politics and the mother on religion. That's the but that's the world's wisdom. What we want is we want there to be oneness according to God. Now turn to uh, Numbers chapter 36, and we're going to try to be brief on these points, but to try to hit them and then move on. Back in Numbers 27, we don't have time to turn to it, but I'll just relate what happened. There was a man named Zelophehad. He had five daughters, and he died. And the order in the Old Testament was the firstborn son was to receive the inheritance. But this man, Zelophehad, didn't have any sons. He had five daughters. And the spiritual energy of these daughters is remarkable. They realized there was no brother to get the inheritance. What is going to become of that inheritance? And so they took the matter to Moses and said, we want it. We want that inheritance. There's no son. Do you know at that time there wasn't light from God to know what to do? But it was the energy and earnestness of this woman that brought it up to Moses. From light from God, what do we do now? And Moses went to the Lord and said, the inheritance is theirs. These daughters were going to inherit the inheritance of their fathers. I've taken that as a wonderful encouragement to us, despite the day and weakness in which we live. We sing, uh, Oh, largely give, tis all thine own. That God loves this energy of faith that says, I want that. I want that for myself. And you know those, those daughters got it. But in chapter 36, <clears throat> just to, uh, for the sake of time, go down to verse 6. I'll read verse 5. And Moses commanded the children of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the sons of Joseph hath well said, This is the thing which the Lord doth command concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry to whom they think best, 
Only to the family of the tribe of their father shall they marry. So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And so on. There's one requirement for these daughters to keep the inheritance. That is, they must marry someone within their own tribe. Why? Because if they didn't, that inheritance would go to another tribe of Israel. You can say, what's the big deal? It's all Israel. They're all the people of God. But God said no. Every, and in the purpose of God, we're talking about Israel now, each tribe had a special blessing from God. Each tribe had an inheritance. And the Lord wasn't interested in, in that inheritance that belonged to that tribe being shifted to that of another tribe. And he says, in order for that not to be so, you need to marry within your own tribe that the inheritance is not lost. Well, this is a wonderful application for us, I believe. When it comes to matters of assembly fellowship, I realize that that's only one facet, but it's an important facet. Grew up next door to some neighbors. They're wonderful neighbors, and they've, my, the, the, uh, the widow now lives next to my mother still many years later. Probably uh, for 60 years they've lived next door. The man was a Catholic. The woman was a Methodist. And yet even there, they said, this is not going to work for dad to be Catholic, for mom to be Methodist. What are we going to do? They said, we're going to become Lutheran. So they joined the Lutheran church. You say, well, what's, where's the wisdom of God in all that? I'm not even bringing that up for the wisdom of God. I'm simply bringing it out in a practical fact that they realized. I'm quite sure she's the Lord. I hope he is. He's gone in eternity now. They realized this isn't going to work. For dad to be going this way and mom to be going that way, they needed to have alignment in ecclesiastical connections. And so here with the tribe, that the inheritance was to be kept in the tribe. And so the principle for us, you know, there are times where you see one like Ruth the Moabitess. She was brought into the congregation of Israel, became Boaz's wife, and look at the marvelous blessing that Ruth is, that name revered for her godliness and her earnestness. And God brought her in. She wasn't of the Israel even. She was of the Moabites. And God brought in the blessing. God is able to do that. But she came in and could say to Naomi, Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy God will be my God. She was locked in to the God of Israel and lined up there. And so here's how important it is that we're of one step in ecclesiastical matters. Now go back to Exodus chapter 2 for a verse. <clears throat> and this ties into the thought of Walking together in agreement. Exodus 2.2 2. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to him a wife, a daughter of Levi. Well, what do we have here? There we have, um, let's turn, allow me one more verse. 1 Corinthians 16, and I believe this gives an illustration of that thought. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And verse 15. I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, 
That word addictive perhaps have a neg- has a negative connotation, but it could be read. And they have devoted themselves to the saints for service. It wasn't only the house of, of Stephanus had devoted themselves to service. They devoted themselves to the saints for service. Their devotedness was not to service. Their devotedness was to the saints. And they'd given themselves up to that. Well, why did I read that verse in Exodus 2 about this man of the tribe of Levi marries a daughter of the tribe of Levi? What tribe was it that was singularly used of God for service among the people of God? It was the tribe of Levi. And here, a man of the tribe of Levi took a wife of the tribe of Levi that they could serve together. Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. You know, the, the world has, a, we use a term, and it's not a bad term, synergy, where that the, the, the sum uh, of the whole and working together, whether it's two or, or ten as the case might be, is more than, than the, uh, the individual contribution of each of the parts. Working together, there can be more. But I just show in this passage here the importance of oneness in service. How sad it is. And, I, and I've, I've heard brother, an older brother of the Lord, they've warned me and they've told me names. They've given me examples and said, you know, here's a brother that was, uh, it was, it had as hard to do it as his wife just held him back. Or here's a sister had a burning desire to please the Lord and, and the husband just had no spiritual energy and, and, and they just kind of bogged down. But to see this oneness in service, how important that is. Now one more verse in 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter three and verse seven. And there perhaps there's other better verses to communicate this thought, but this one this one comes to mind. Likewise, ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. <clears throat> I find this remarkable that this was Peter that wrote this and not Paul. Because Peter could write and knew whereof he spoke. He was a married man. Now most of the exhortations in scripture about husband and wife and so on were written by a man that was never married. Say, so why, why are we listening to a man that is instructing us? Well, I, brother, back home when I grew up was so helpful in that regard. He said, in that sense, the Lord would take up a vessel that went... Went water things down to accommodate for his own failures and shortcomings in this area and set before us the ideal and the model of what God's thought was. Husbands, love your wives and so on, even as Christ loved the church and wives be subject to your husbands and so on. But here, it's this matter of dwelling with them according to knowledge. And I'm sure every husband, at least I, I, I can acknowledge, you know, real failure on this very point, that of communication, honoring the wife, but being areas together of the grace of life. And I take it the grace of life is not some uh, abstract concept. It's, the grace of life is the practical enjoyment of life together. But it does suppose that there is discussion and communication on certain points. Now, what I speak now about oneness in matters of personal judgment. One day my wife and I were on, we were on a little trip and we were discussing about the number of things there is among us Matters where there's differences of judgment. I don't know, we came up with 30 or something of this sort. 
But if we brought them as brought them to say, for instance, to the meeting this afternoon, I could say mention one topic, and we'd probably get maybe a 60-40 split where some would say, yeah, this is where I'm at on this, but I'm not on that. Okay, set that 40% aside and take the 60% here that are aligned on it. Bring up another topic and say that it's 20-80, and another 20% says, no, I, I just can't go along with that point. Then you bring up another topic, and there you again, you split it again. And pretty soon you're down, you're down to two families that are lockstep with each other on all these different topics. You know the type of talks, topics I'm talking about. And finally there's something you find that these two families says, well, on that, we're not aligned. We, we're just not in the same step. We just don't look at things the same way. And then you get to husband and wife. Say, so you know what? There's some things here that we don't agree on. But, you know, there's, there's provision and there's ways of God. There's an order for us to, to go on even in these things that are not vital matters. So there is that matter, uh, the, these matters where there must be communication. And then there is the order of God. And that leads me to the third point, And that is to understand the respective roles or places of husband and wife. Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2. And I, and I think I'll just close out with uh, one more point after this, but to uh, <clears throat> close out with these perhaps four points as to relates to marriage. This would be the third one. Again, the first one is to know that that one loves the Lord, is saved, is a believer in the Lord Jesus. The second point is walking together in agreement, both as to assembly fellowship as to service for the Lord, and as to matters of, of a personal judgment. But now this third point I'd like to bring out is the relative place of the man and woman, or the husband and wife. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh men professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. And, uh, well, I'll just read the rest of it. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. That's a provision for the practical salvation and uh, to um, look in confidence with God, certainly in a day when uh, many child, children died in childbirth, that they could look to the Lord in confidence that he would preserve and bring them through. The point here is there's two different roles. This isn't talking husband and wife per se. It's talking the place of the man and the place of the woman. Well, here's the same point, and I'm going to apply it to marriage in this sense. For a young sister to look for a husband, is your husband to be willing to take the public place? Is he willing to pray publicly? Is he willing to open the scriptures? Is he willing to take that place that God says is your responsibility? And then to the husband to the or the husband to be, is that woman that you have an interest in, is she interested in being subject, or is she just interested in outward exterior attire? 
to know the relative place of the man and the woman. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, it gets a little bit more specific with respect to husband and wife. In verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with a washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man yet ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth, even as the Lord the church. We'll stop there. Again, these two places are brought out. Now it's not so much the place of the woman in taking the place of subjection in the house of God as it relates to men, but here it's the wife taking place of subjection to her husband. Now I want to say this too about the, um, this thought of, uh, of subjection and, the, and that woman doesn't take the teaching role and so on. That we find, and I've had conversations with, with brethren on this, this point, and, and, I, and I think I should clarify and qualify it a little bit, uh, and that is, you, you find that Aquila and Priscilla instructed Apollos in the word of the Lord uh, more, more uh, clearly or more carefully, however it's worded there. And you know, I can say, and many brothers can say as well, that there are things that we've been helped from uh, by sisters in a little different way. I'm thinking of a, a couple, uh, the, uh, the brothers now with the Lord uh, used to spend a fair amount of time with, and I always enjoyed visiting them. And the brother would be would bring before us before me doctrines and teach me the scriptures and it was very helpful in uh, in uh, communicating the truth of God and teaching me. But I enjoyed as much or more my conversations with his wife because she applied such practical wisdom and such assessment of life and family life and different relationships within the home. In her sphere, I probably learned more from her than I learned from him as to the doctrine of the word of God. Was she out of her place? No, she was always in subjection uh, in her home. It wasn't that the woman did not have, was intelligent, clear in what she brought out and what she said had a lot of power. So there is that, there is that place, but there is a thought of, of, of subjection that uh, in the wives submitting to your own husbands and then the husband when it says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, we say, how is this possible? I cannot love as Christ loved. But I don't believe the point here is measure. It's character. Not measure, but character. None of us can love as he loved. We have his life, but he's the eternal, infinite one. But it's that character of love that loves because of love in itself towards the object of its heart's desire. And so we can love according to that character. Well, perhaps we'll just close it there. I, um, those, those, uh, those points as to the Lord's guidance for us. And again, in the ways of God, we may not have a lot of specifics, and we may not be able to point to a chapter and verse, but rather that we have a framework, a structure as to how the Lord guides. 
And there are the four dreams of Joseph, those dreams that, first of all, we're looking for the Lord's guidance, that we don't simply judge according to appearance, by what appears to be so, but to wait on the Lord, not to make haste for guidance, and that we don't follow the danger of following the path of others, even if they're guided to the Lord. That does not mean, in fact, it probably does not mean that's what the Lord's mind is for us. And then not to be presumptuous, just to say, well, this is so, therefore that must be so. No, and likewise, not to be moved by fear, not to have a knee-jerk reaction to something that may be, um, that causes to flee in fear, but rather, even in those situations, look to the Lord for wisdom. And then just to the three points we considered for marriage, the first is, does that young man, does that young woman, do they love Christ? Are they obedient to Christ? Do they walk with Christ? The second point is to walking together in agreement. Agreement as to ecclesiastical fellowship. And let me put it more precious in a more precious way. Do they see the Lord Jesus not only as their Savior, but do they see him as the gathering center of his people, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Oneness on that. Oneness as to service, and then oneness as to those personal matters in <clears throat> In life that requires us to be to talk through, and then that third that third major point: Does the husband and the wife to be do they recognize their respective places? The husband to take the public place, to take the spiritual lead, and also to demonstrate love to his wife. And then, is the woman, is the wife, is she willing and desirous to take the subject place that God has granted to her? Well, let's pray.